Everybody, welcome, welcome back to another episode of an Evolved Review. I'm your host, James Caleb Kitchens. I am joined today, as always, by my co-host, the man who has watched literally every second of everything on WWE Network, Caleb Stovall. Caleb, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having me, as always, and 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 all of your intros and stuff like that. <laughs> I try to come up with a different one for you every week, and then I want to know. It's different, right? <laughs> exactly. And we have a we have a guest on this week, very special guest. Uh, this man's had 16 years in the pro- professional wrestling business. He is a senior official for Palmetto Championship Wrestling. He is a senior official for Viral Pro Wrestling. Welcome to the show, Chris Wiggins. Uh, thanks, guys, for having me. Um, it's going to be interesting because I'm going to be saying Caleb and Caleb, so I, I think I'm going to have to go Stovall and Kitchens, so I will get everybody confused. Well, but it's, it's- like we're back in flatline and stuff like that right when when the uh when the you know when the uh video comes out it'll actually have our uh our names under our windows and everything so people will be able to keep up with it fine (laughs) so um so today we got a very important episode very significant episode in the history of pro wrestling and we're talking about the montreal screw job um, so this is, uh, we're talking about the dark side of the ring coverage of Montreal Screwjob. We're going to expand on that a bit. Um, but if you haven't seen the dark side of the ring episode, you can catch that on Google play, YouTube, Hulu, and various other places, uh, where you can catch dark side of the ring. So if you haven't seen the episode, definitely go check it out and then come back and, and check out our uh, review of it. Um, you'll definitely get a lot more out of this if you've actually seen the episode. So, um, you know, before we get started here, this one's narrated by Dutch Mantel. Um, I want to get everybody's kind of just, you know, brief overall thoughts on on this episode and what their, you know, their coverage of it. Uh, let's start with you, Chris, since you're, since you're the guest, that's tradition. Um, you know, so this is definitely the most recent um, perspective of the actual Montreal Screwjob. And let's be honest, I mean, this came out what, mid-2019, roughly. And so this happened in 97. Uh, since then, WWE decided that uh, they would make men's with Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart have made men's um, through tons and tons of shoot interviews. We've heard different perspectives. Uh, this is probably the first time that we've seen more of a cinematic style um, to kind of reenact some of the situations and maybe get more of a perspective that's cooled down. I, I really enjoy it because not many perspectives have gotten Jim Cornette. And I think Jim Cornette uh, is a historian of pro wrestling. So he's been able to give different perspectives of it. Uh, We've seen a more calmer, cooler, collective Bret Hart in this situation. Um, And we've seen a couple other wrestlers give their perspective. Um, I believe this is probably the first time other than his podcast that Pritchard's, you know, come in. So uh, it's, Definitely given more of a, um, I think, calmer, cooler, not so scripted perspective of the Montreal Screwjob versus the WWE version um, or somebody else's perspective that's given out that information just to make the buck. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely always interesting with any any topic to, you know, the WWE is involved in to get it out of their spotlight because they're always going to have their spin on it. Um, and I think Dark Side of the Ring's done that with a few different things. Um, what about you, Caleb? What was your thoughts on this? Well, it's definitely one of the more, uh, I guess, happier uh, Dark Side of the Rings that we've covered on this one. Um, 
Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because, um, like Chris said, what, what I did was, um, you know, I watched the dark side of the ring and then I watched um, some of, you know, the stuff on the WWE Network from uh, the Monday Night War series that talked about the heart of war, um, Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart rivalry and stuff like that, which obviously this, you know, pretty much culminates that rivalry uh, and everything like that. Um, it's just, it's it's so funny because, if you talk to a non-wrestling fan, right? If, if, if you just knew people, like, like if you just know someone who knows about wrestling but doesn't really know about wrestling and you were to show them this, like, particular uh, part of history in wrestling, they would just be like, what is this? Like, like, like this doesn't make any sense. Like, the, the idea of it to me is just so fascinating, you know, because on one hand, you feel for Bret Hart, but then on... It, on another level, you kind of feel like, well, dude, you might be taking this a little bit too seriously. You know, like like you're about to go to another company and make a lot more money. So, like, you know, what 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 really is the problem and stuff like that? Um, like I said, I love the uh, I, I love the fact that Dark Side of the Ring was able to get you know um, a more views on it than just you know WWE's version. Uh, because let's face it, you know, this is the type of thing WWE would not really even address, you know, a lot of the times. Or if they did, they would just be like, ha, 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 you know, that, that's, that's a funny part in history. You know, kind of like they did with the Brawl for All, even. You know, like just kind of like, ah, that's, that's just a box in history. But instead, you know, it made such a big, you know, shockwave that it was like, no, we have to address this. Like, like we can't, we can't hide this. And right. so... Um, it's just it's it's interesting to see both sides uh, to it and everything. And to be quite honest, you know, I had a lot of questions going into it, and now I'm left with even more questions. To be quite honest, of it, like it's it's just that one type of thing of like we just will never know the full side of the story. Yeah, you, well, you mentioned that this is a one of the brighter episodes of Dark Side of the Ring. Like no one died, right? So that definitely puts it. <laughs> above like half of them um and and you and i coming out of the last two episodes which were the benoit episodes which were really heavy uh i'm definitely looking forward to something that we can talk about at you know with a little bit less uh of a you know a weight on us um so yeah i mean this was a monumental event in wrestling so let's talk about you know let's go back to the beginning talk about how this came about um so stampede wrestling right I, i i always knew about stampede um, you know, I knew that it was a bunch of, you know, Canadian guys and it was a bunch of people that were more, um, you know, not the giant muscly, you know, folks from a WWE. It wasn't your huge bodybuilders all the time. And, and that, you know, it was formed by Stu Hart. Um, when I started looking into it, I mean, so their first run was from 1948 to 1984. And that's insane. I mean, if you thought about it today, like in terms, if you thought of a territory in terms of like an indie promotion, right? Imagine an indie promotion that ran for 40 years. That just doesn't, I mean, that just doesn't happen, you know? Um, and then, so they had a, a second run in 1985 and then um, they, you know, were trying to get it back off the ground. And then finally they ran from uh, 99 uh, to 2008. So they had a comeback after all this happened. Um, but, uh, so WWE kind of makes a deal to acquire them and then they end up bringing in, um, 
Bret Hart, who is kind of this rising star in professional wrestling. Um, so, uh, you know, Caleb, what did the Hart family kind of mean to you that, you know, when you were growing up? Well, it's, it's interesting because Bret Hart was really one of the first people I was introduced to when it came to pro wrestling. My, my father, Matt Stovall, um, I guess when I discovered wrestling, he was watching it one day and stuff like that. And as time went on, he would tell me, he would tell me two things. He would say, Sting is the best in WCW and Bret Hart is the best in WWF. That was what he said. So I kind of, you know, I basically went with that and I became a fan of, uh, of Bret Hart as a child, you know, just because of that and stuff like that. I didn't really realize why Brett was so good until like the later years when I really started to understand professional wrestling, you know, the art of storytelling, the art of putting together matches and stuff like that. And, you know, Brett Hart, God, he's just, he's so good. You know, like, 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 like you watch his matches, everything he does, you know, everyone says it, it, it might be cliche at this point, but you know, it, it, it really is true. Like everything he did meant something. He didn't do a move just to do a move to pop the fans or something like that. He, he always looked at his matches like a legit wrestling match. And I think that, you know, really shows what the Hart family really instilled in him and everything like that, like what his father instilled in him. And then when I really got familiar with the Hart family was when uh, Wrestling with Shadows uh, came out. And, you know, the, the, the line I took from it was uh, was all of the all of the sisters are, mar are married to wrestlers and all of the uh, brothers are, are like. So I can't remember exactly. I, I screwed that up. But um, Chris probably know what I'm talking about. But uh, yeah, that's and, and I would see like the stories of Stu Hart, you know, taking the people and like literally stretching them out. Like that is the definition of stretching someone out to really see if they can take it uh, and stuff like that. So they, they seem like they were no nonsense kind of like uh, when it came to wrestling, you know, like, like, it's like, it's like, okay, well you either want to do this or you don't want to do this kind of thing. And I think that's what they mean. And, and, you know, look at the people that they've trained and stuff like that. You know, we, we mentioned Chris Benoit and um, Chris Jericho and uh, Lance Storm uh, even. So, you know, just to name a few. Um, so so they have a huge, uh, huge history in uh, in the pro wrestling world. Yeah. And, and I mean, going back to, you know, staying in WCW, Bret Hart and uh, WWF, you know, the, the fact that both of them use the same finish uh, is interesting there. Yes. Um, so, I mean, and they definitely, there definitely was a point in time where they both were essentially carrying uh, their respective companies. Um, mm -hmm. Chris, uh, what did kind of, you know, Stampede Wrestling, the Hart family, what did that mean to you, you know, when you first were introduced to either or both of them? Uh, so I never really watched any of the Stampede stuff uh, as, growing up. I just, it wasn't, um, wasn't readily available for me until later in, in life when I became studying uh, for pro wrestling and tape studying uh, is when I started kind of catching on to more of the information that was coming out from the Stampede era. I knew the family um, 
from the WWF perspective, uh, I believe that Stu Hart was put on a pedestal by the McMahon family for a, a huge reason. Um, it was probably one of the early developmental territories for WWE without actually being a developmental territory. Um, it, it, there was so much talent that would either start out in uh, the Stampede Pro Wrestling or that they would uh, come to WWF, WWE, and uh, this probably even goes back to Vince Sr., to where they would use those guys, and once they ran out of the territory in the Northeast, they would send them to Canada. And then essentially, uh, you know, Stu would send them from Canada to either Puerto Rico or to Japan. Um, so as growing up a third-generation wrestling fan, the British Bulldogs and the Hart Foundation uh, and Bad News Brown were some of the guys that I grew up watching. My dad was like, this guy right here uh, with Jimmy Hart and Anvil the Nightheart is going to be probably the best wrestler of the 90s. He's like, I bet the bottom, like, look at this guy. I mean, he's he's in good shape. He's conditioned. Um, you know, the only thing he lacks is a little bit of, of talent when it comes to mic skills. So I watched him a lot as I grew up and got into independent wrestling. Um, one thing I realized in my era, and especially in the territory that I was working in, a lot of the guys wore the same gear. It was all black and red and stuff like that. So I took my character and said, how do I stand out? Well, I got to stand out by being a flamboyant color. I'm not Shawn Michaels. I didn't like Shawn Michaels. I didn't care for the Shawn Michaels attitude. Um, there, I, I wasn't Coco Beware either, so I wasn't going to be wearing those kind of colors. So I went with the pink and the black, and I figured what other color that is completely on the other scheme of colors is, is pink. So I really took my whole look based off of Bret Hart. Um, and I even loved doing his moves. I loved, you know, doing a flying forearm off the middle rope. I, I loved doing uh, a lot of different things that he did. I, I try to perfect them into those perspectives because I felt just as you were saying, Caleb, uh, every move he made meant something. There was no wasted move. Uh, my favorite move that he did not do, he took was the sternum first into the turnbuckle and he just took it so hard and the ring, the sound, the WWF ring made when he hit that turnbuckle just made you think he cracked the sternum. Yes. And I was terrified to ever take that move. So I took it a handful of times, but he, he was just, it was the fact that he was so confident in what he was doing and learning, getting into the business, learning how professional he was and how much he cared about the business um, which just, it just meant so much to many people. And then coming and finding out, you know, that everybody in the Hart Foundation wasn't just a group of guys that got together. They were all family. You had the British Bulldog who was married into the family. You had Nightheart that was married into the family. You know, you had the Pillmans who grew up in that area. So, I mean, Pillman was, was trained uh, by a lot of those guys up there. And they all ran together. I mean, you, there's probably nobody in the wrestling business in the in the 70s and 80s that did not go to stampede or did not come across the paths of any of those guys dynamite kid and have some type of influence on him i mean we talked about sting and Bret hart having the same move uh th that was something that they were both taught you know from japan so that's kind of where the move came from so right you know 
there's just so much that came from from Canada in that territory from that family. And I think a lot of people uh, don't quite remember how well that family was and why they're one of the major families of professional wrestling besides the McMahon family or the Rhodes or Guerreros. You know, I mean, everybody has some sort of territory. I mean, they were the, they were the biggest ones. They, they were the well-known Canada family, you know, I mean, it, it just, they produced so much and they were really good about trying to execute and making sure that the psychology was being told and being taught. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the greats came out of the dungeon. Um, mm-hmm. One of the ones that always strikes me as being kind of like out of left field is um, a lot of people don't know that Mark Henry actually trained with Stu Hart. Um, you know, when he yeah. was making the transition from Olympic wrestling to pro wrestling, uh, I'm sure WWE probably had some hand in that and making that happen. Um, and, and why wouldn't they? Because, you know, it's like, hey, you send somebody to Stu Hart, they're either going to quit or they're going to be one of the greats. That's, you know, odds are, um, you know, so I think as far as legendary wrestling trainers, he's probably right there. And and yeah, I mean, Bret Hart was kind of the consummate professional wrestler i mean the guy everywhere that he went you know especially when he came through that curtain i mean he was just on you know and and he was you know sort of that i mean granted i don't think his character was necessarily his exact personality but we talk about this all the time of it was like their base personality just kind of amped up and um and i think i think he was that i think that he was a uh you know was a star he took it seriously when he was the champion he took that seriously. You know, he was the champion to him. Uh, and, you know, Bruce Pritchard talks about that a little bit in the episode is he was the champion. Um, and, and he did take that incredibly seriously. And that's something that you want as a booker, promoter or whatever. You know, when you put the championship on someone, you want them to be a champion. You know, and I think Bret Hart definitely did that. So um, Bret Hart comes into uh, WWF at the time. Um, and they ended up taking the belt off of Ric Flair, which, I mean, <laughs> you know, any, anytime you decide to do that, I mean, he did have some health complications, but, it, you know, you're you're at being asked to carry the torch from Ric Flair. That's a big deal. Um, yeah. You know, so they talk a, l- a little bit about that in the episode. Um, so let's kind of let's kind of switch gears a second and talk about the other person that's that's involved in this heavily, which is Shawn Michaels, which they obviously didn't get him to speak on this. Um, you know, I don't know if WWE would have allowed it if Sean did want to do it. Uh, we'll never know the answer to that one. But, um, you know, so kind of Sean's kind of journey here, they kind of started off talking about the curtain call. Um, so the curtain call, of course, being Kevin Nash, uh, Scott Hall, uh, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, basically all coming out to the ring as Scott Hall and Kevin Nash um, went off to uh, WCW. Uh, Chris, what what did you think about this event? Did you see this live when it happened, or did you hear about it later? I heard about it years, years later um, when I started, you know, questioning where, you know, the the click logo came from, where the the hand signal from the, you know, NWO guys, just kind of curiosity. Um, And my my perspective of this is 
Um, if you get Scott Hall's take on it from the actual dark side um, of the ring, he, he says like, well, you know, the fans loved it. The fans loved it. And that's so we were looking at this, this being like 95, 96, right? And I don't understand how he, how his perspective is saying the fans loved it because when he transitioned, transitioned over to WCW during this time frame and they formed the NWO, you know, people were legitimately thinking that these guys were being sent from Vince to WCW to take over, you know, WCW. And even to the point where we had to do some cease and desist orders that the characters were too much alike. Um, I, I think that it was honestly the time frame for Shawn Michaels, knowing at that time, was a very hard individual to work with. Uh, very immature, unprofessional, uh, charismatic, one of the best wrestlers, athletic human beings in WWF of all time. Uh, especially during that time frame where a lot of the guys were really big. They were doing a lot of the same stuff and he was coming out and doing more athletic, agile moves, taking more risk. So he was standing out in that perspective. However, when he didn't get his way, Sean would lose his smile. He would pack his bag up. He would take his ball. He would run. One of my biggest things, and this is a turning point of me not liking Sean Michaels was a time frame later in his career where he got hurt and was not able to compete anymore, but just flies right over to Japan and does a whole bunch of different things in Japan. Uh, one of the biggest things that came out in the States was he, he, he was a special guest referee for FMW. Yep. And it was just like, you're supposed to be hurt. You're not supposed to be able to compete anymore. How are you just doing all these different things Really quick, and a lot of people talk about that. Um, I can't deny the athletic ability, the character, but in, in my opinion, I think that Vince saw something of saying, "Hey, we got we're going we got to do something different, and we're just going to let him go do whatever he wants to do because he's so young." Like I didn't, there was a, there was a, a decent age difference between Brett and Sean at this time. I, I had quick math. Like Brett was almost 40 when, when the screw job happened. Um, I don't know what age John Michaels was, but I imagine it's, it's, you know, five, 10 years, maybe who knows. Um, but there is an age difference there. There was an athletic difference there. And Shawn Michaels just was the future of WWF. If there was going, going to be a future, I didn't like the fact that they broke the wall down the barrier Uh Later on, we, we end up seeing that that ended up being a great thing for the business to a certain degree. But, you know, uh, probably a good thing for WWF and not so much for the wrestling business as a whole. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the short-term implications of it, when I say short-term, I mean over the next probably five, ten years, I think it was incredibly lucrative. But, you know, 20 years later, I don't know if we can maybe say the same thing. Um, if you look at ratings during the Monday Night Wars and Attitude Era versus today, um, Caleb, what did you think about the the curtain call and kind of how this came about? Uh, well, it's funny because for many years uh, I didn't understand it. Um, I, I, I like I didn't understand what was the big deal about it. 
And then when I, you know, I got more stories about it and stuff like that, I was like, oh, okay, I see what they did and everything like that and why everyone was pissed off. It's funny, though, because if you look at that incident, you wonder, let's say they hadn't have done that, right? Let's say they had never come out. Would the business be where it is right now? Because you got to think about it. Not only did, you know, Triple H, he was the one that got punished. He was supposed to win the King of the Ring, and he was probably going to go on to WrestleMania that year or something like that, and he was going to get this big, huge push. And instead, that didn't happen, and we got Stone Cold Steve Austin. So, you know, you look at you look at that curtain call, and you go, well, you know, you could say that, you know, well, it exposed the business or it did this and everything. But had it not happened, you'd have never seen the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin. You'd have never seen the start of even the attitude there, you know, um, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and so this is something that didn't really cover in the episode. So we're moving towards this whole title situation, right? In the episode, they almost make it seem like Brett got the championship off of Flair and then held it until he dropped it to Sean at Survivor Series. But we know that's not the case. Um, so, they, you know, the, the first time that the title would change hands between these two guys, as we all know, is WrestleMania 12 with the infamous Iron Man match. And something that I didn't know until I started researching this topic is that WWF actually took Sean off the road and gave him time to train for this. They were like, yeah, you got like two months to just condition yourself. While Bret Hart, and, and you know, for many years, I've been 100% on Shawn Michaels' side in this whole thing. And, th- and a lot of this stuff has definitely changed that perspective for me. Um, yeah, so they take Sean off the road. And they're like, yeah, man, you got like two months, just train. And then Bret Hart is out here, you know, wrestling Yokozuna and, you know, all these other guys, you know, and, and working a full schedule, basically. Um, so, I mean, that to me, you know, makes it look like, you know, even further that the WWF was trying to kind of make Sean look fantastic. And then, you know, Brett's just kind of this like workhorse and they're trying to get the last that they can out of him before they just kind of toss him aside. Um, you know, uh, Kayla, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, it's, it's funny because I, I agree with Brett that, like, around this time, he was having some of his best matches at this time. I mean, that match that he had with, you know, and, and, and this just goes to show you how good he was. I mean, he had a match that was good with Diesel. That was, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite Bret Hart matches. And, you know, how, how many people can say that they had a good match with Diesel? I mean, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> um but yeah, he was having some of his best matches, and I did not know uh, that either. That Shawn Michaels was basically off the road for two months and stuff like that, because you know you would still see him on Monday Night Raw every single night. You would, I mean, you would still hear from him and stuff like that. So that never crossed my mind. Um, yeah, I, I can see where you know Brett might get a little bit pissed, where he's just like, "Hey, man, I'm I'm going out here having these awesome matches, drawing these these houses and stuff like that." And um, yeah, here, here's your belt, you know, kind of thing. But I guess at the same time, you know, I've I also just kind of see it like like 
okay, well, you know, I, I get to go, I get to have my time off after this, you know, kind of thing. So yeah, I'll go and bust my ass for a little bit. Then yeah, here, you take the belt for a little bit. I'm going to go home and relax and make money, you know, kind of thing. So I, I don't know. There's, there's different ways that you can look at it. Um, but I want to go back to something real quick was, yeah, just at this time, Shawn Michaels, I mean, you know, let's face it, he was just a huge prick. I mean, <laughs> Jim Cornette even says that. He's like, he's like, Shawn Michaels is one of the greatest of all time, but he was a fucking prick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that sums up Shawn Michaels pretty nicely. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, so they've got Brett working a full-time schedule. Um, mm -hmm. and Bret Hart is quoted, uh, pulled up a quote here from him saying they wanted Sean to be scraping me up off the mat, but I think I was ultimately the one that ended up scraping him off the mat. Um, mm -hmm. and he talks about how, um, you know, they filmed Michael's like working with his trainer, um, uh, Jose Lothario, uh, famous, uh, Lucha, uh, Lucha Libre, uh, performer. Um, and then, you know, they showed like Bret Hart jogging in calgary and then getting stretched by his dad um you know about the the, the the infamous swimming swimming pool i mean i was about to say that one the, everything in the build-up for wrestling i mean I, that wrestlemania was one i only got as a child and and even as a teenager there's only i only was able to rent the four big four you know pay-per-views the royal rumble uh wrestlemania so, you know, SummerSlam and Survivor Series. So watching Royal Rumble and then getting in to, and I believe, so this was 96 if I'm, if I remember, correct? Correct. Sure. Right. Okay. So this was a huge Royal Rumble that we had. Vader made a big debut. Uh, Sean, this is big Sean comeback kind of deal. He wins. We go to Iron Man match. And the, vin the, the video packages that we were set up with going into WrestleMania for Bret Hart extremely slow the music was very boring we watch as you said watch him running on the side of the road he's down in the dungeon he's at his house swimming they show him swim a couple laps he pops up he does a little interview we actually see some of that footage in the wrestling with shadows but we have this high intense video package every week with john michaels training doing sit-ups upside down and you know, doing all this acrobatic stuff. So they pumped up Shawn Michaels to be this extremely young athlete and walking in, you had no other choice unless you were a diehard Bret Hart fan, believing that Bret Hart was going to lose. Uh, they just, they, to me, they just, they turned the tables and turned the investment, which in retrospect, looking at this as a performer, um, you're going to get bitter. You're going to get upset. You're and, and being pulled, you're working. Bret Hart used to go to India and the streets, just Bret Hart alone, not WWF, Bret Hart alone. And the streets would be slammed full of people. I mean, it was like he was a pop star. Every culture across the world during this time frame as, as he was a champion. He was um, over there. Exactly. So Bret Hart constantly on the road, Shawn Michaels being able to heal up, and for Brett to be a champion during the time frame where they're running house shows, where the house show market is fairly is starting to come up a little bit, uh, it's reasonable at that time. Nothing compared to what we're doing, what we're seeing these days. Uh, to to work the shows, to do the tapings, 
and then have to go do a 60-minute Iron Man match, the very first Iron Man match on WrestleMania, you know, was – there's no tell what kind of conditioning Brett was actually going into that. Uh, and to let to let Shawn Michaels just sit at home, not saying he's sitting at home doing nothing, but there's a different lifestyle when you're on the road and you're working you know, five days a week you know, twice on Sundays in some, some aspects, and then having to go into a match like this, the conditioning levels were in two different areas. The, the perspective, the perspective that they were showing on television was in two different areas. And I don't think that they truly respected Bret Hart as a champion. And it's upsetting to sit here and watch one of his runs uh, to be kind of tarnished. And even in the second run, when they actually, you know, uh, get the belt back on him and we're going in to Survivor Series. It's it just, that's the retrospective of Bret Hart being upset. And there's tons of wrestlers that will go and talk unbelievable amount of information on Bret Hart, just saying he was a whiner. He took the business too seriously. I think he, when you're brought up in professional wrestling, the way he was brought up, We've always said it. There's a joke that runs around. You have the map of the world and you sit there and you watch it and you look at it and say, Canada is this type of wrestling. You know, Mexico's Lucha Libre, Japan strong style. It's all respected everywhere you go. It's traditionally looked at as a real sport or as a as a legitimate form of entertainment. And then you get to the States and it's a joke. Like, oh, you're a wrestling fan? It's a joke. That's the way I think people are looking at Bret Hart. He was like, hey, not only am I a wrestling champion, but I'm the guy. I'm the top guy. I'm the guy who is on the main event, who people are seeing first and are saying, I'm going to buy this ticket based off of him being there. And I think he took his job seriously. And people to discredit him for how serious he took his job, I think, is a little upsetting. Uh, and I think that's what makes Bret Hart a little bitter when he goes to do some of these interviews now. Especially when he was raised, I mean – his whole life was wrestling. I mean, uh, you know, with him coming from the Hart family. Uh, I want to touch on the, the swimming pool. Uh, so uh, this came to mind when you guys mentioned it, uh, about Brett having the swimming pool in his house. If you've read Edge's book, uh, Adam Copeland on Edge, there's like half a chapter that he spends talking about how impressed he was that Brett Hart had a heated swimming pool inside his house. Uh, I don't know why that just came back to me, but... <laughs> well, could I... I, I want to bring this up real quick, you know, like... Because I I also feel as though, you know, in ways you could also look at this from a booking standpoint, right? You know, you have Bret Hart do all of these matches, right? And then you have Shawn Michaels, you know, take off or whatnot to get ready for the main event, blah, blah, blah. And then Bret goes away. Shawn carries the load. And, you know, originally, I'm pretty sure even uh, Bruce Pritchard has even said this, you know, the next WrestleMania – they had already penciled Brett and Sean in for that main event. And I, you know, in ways you can look at it as Brett kind of might not have seen that picture, or maybe he did, you know, kind of thing. I don't know. Um, but I, I, I understand, you know, um, people saying, well, I guess I don't really understand. Like, like, cause I, I, I think he did take the business seriously, which is a good thing. Um, I just think at times, you know, maybe someone didn't communicate where they were going with him or something like that, you know, and maybe maybe that might 
what he had been pissed off about so much too. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's no, that's possible. I mean, that happens a lot, you know, with talent in general um, or just with life in general, you know, where there's like a communication right. barrier or something like that. And from what it sounds like, I don't think Vincent Mann had a really good line of communication with Brett based on these interviews. Um, yeah. And he might not have, but um, I was just saying, you know, m maybe that was like their plan and stuff like that. But, you know, hey, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> so let's get into where some of our, you know, to, let's get into the actual event here and, and kind of what led up to it. So, um, you know, we start with kind of Bret Hart getting an offer from WCW and Bret Hart being the professional that he is takes less money. He, he takes a, a, a pay bump, obviously, but he takes considerably less money than WCW was offering him. He goes to Vincent Manny, he says, Hey, you know, they made me this offer. You know, what can you do to keep me? And Vince offers him, uh, the number that was quoted as 1.5 million a year at that point in time, fantastic contract. Um, Brett says, all right, well, I mean, I've spent all this time here. Um, I'm going to be loyal to the company and I'm going to stay. Um, and I think that was fantastic of him because a lot of people, we could say a lot of people wouldn't do that, but we don't have to do that because a lot of people didn't do that. Um, you know, a lot of people saw those big paychecks and took off. Um, so we've got that. Um, so they're trying to figure out a way to get the title off, off of Bret Hart. Um, you know, because, uh, he decides to stay with WWF. Things start to go kind of sideways as far as the ratings war goes. And Vincent Mann backs out on the contract. Um, I didn't know about this until the uh, Dark Side of the Ring episode. And this was another one of those things that kind of swayed me away from being on Sean's side in all of this. Because I've always had the mindset, you know, based off of what I knew about this, of like, Eh, you know, Bret Hart, you know, just didn't want to lose on the way out. But there's so much more to it than that. And and I think Vince going back on the contract um, is kind of the nail in the coffin for whether Bret Hart was right to do this or not. Um, you know, and, and, and there's, there's a lot of different opinions on that. Uh, so what do you guys think about Vince giving him the contract and then, you know, saying hey, we can't pay you that amount just, you know, because he gets tied up in a ratings war with WCW. I think it's, you know, I, I'm not surprised. And I've heard that before. So so I knew about that. Um, and I think that they addressed that in uh, Wrestling with Shadows uh, as well. Um, yeah. But here's my thing. You know, Vince is painted in a bad light in that instance. And it's kind of like, you know, I think he wanted to keep Bret Hart, you know, he, he, he didn't want uh, he didn't want him to go. And so he thought at the time, he's like, I can afford this. But then, you know, as they're going into the attitude era, you know, the attitude era hadn't really started yet. You know, it was just, you know, it was just leaning towards that uh, and stuff like that. And they were still getting hammered at this time by WCW. I mean, I, I remember that like there was a point in time period where I didn't watch uh, a single episode of Raw because Nitro was so good uh, at the time as, as a child. So, you know, I just think that at the time he thought he could keep Brett, but then he realized, oh, well, you know, I can't keep you. But 
I guess my question is, does that really necessarily make him like that bad of a person in this instance? Like, I mean, I, I just, I think it's more of just a, 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 and I'm not really defending anybody. I'm just more questioning of like, I mean, that doesn't really like, to me, he didn't really do anything wrong. I think Brett took it that way that, you know, he's like, he's like, well, you know, at first you really wanted to keep me. Now you really don't, you know, kind of thing. So I, I can see Brett's side of it, but at the same time, I'm almost kind of like, I mean, I just, I just think Vinny was, you know, backed into a corner and he just couldn't get out of it. It was like, I mean, this is what it is, but that's just me. Uh, yeah. So Quickly touching base on it, I, I think um, initially, you know, they, they come to good terms. And I don't think that Brett, uh, I, I think he's upset that, you know, he feels that there's probably loyalty that he should be owed in some aspects of how much work his family has put into WWF at the time, uh, especially with him having family still there after he leaves. Because, you know, we still had Owen there. We had Bruce Bullock, we had We had Nightheart uh, there at the time. And so, and I think the relationship between Vince and Brent were more of a, of a, like a stepfather kind of perspective. So the money coming into play, I think at some point, maybe Brent may come to an understanding or something that's not being discussed at all is how much was Shawn Michaels going to get paid after this? How much of a pay jump was he going to get in on his secondary contract? And, And my question is this is, if you if you wanted Brett to be there so badly, or let's just say let's take that out of the question. If you wanted to keep the title in WWF, and you wanted to treat Brett with some type of respect and dignity, because let's understand this: like the Canadian mentality of staying face is equivalent to the somewhat mentality of staying face in Japan, not here in the states. I mean, in the states, you know, your retirement match. You're, uh, or if you're in a home, or your hometown, you're going to lose. That's almost inevitable from a booking perspective. But in some of these other countries, the uh, idea of a character and how you're treated, and the amount of respect that you have, especially in your hometown or home country of that aspect, plays a huge part. I think maybe a safer way if they they could not give Brett the amount of money he was asking for from WWF, and they knew they couldn't do it. Why not just give him an extension? Uh, because at that point, he had not signed with WCW. Uh, so I think maybe you give him an extension and you, you let him win at home and then drop the belt Monday night in whatever perspective they need and hold him on the books for another month, six months, uh, whatever you needed to do. We weren't there. I don't know how the corporate side of the business was being ran at that time. Um, you, you know, so I, I I, do I blame Vince for retracting his his contract? I mean, we're, we don't know the details of what was going on at that time. Uh, from a business perspective, as a guy who has book show and had to look at a roster page and look at how much this talent's going to cost me, uh, you have to w- figure out who's worth it, who's not worth it. And I think at that time, especially from the WrestleMania from you know previous years there, with the Ironman match, I think the writing was on the walls that they were not expecting Brett to be the guy that was going to be the flagship of this company and was probably going to go from a guy who was ultimately a main event guy to probably a mid card guy due to age Mm. or even possibly the politics that was discussed 
in the in this uh, docu series here that Sean was going to come in and was going to do all these things with all his boys prior to the curtain call. You know um, what that could have that could have happened uh, down the road. I mean, we see that at Gen- Degeneration X was performed as how heavy they were on the show and how much room they were given. You know, on what they could and could not do. It was pretty much what they could do because there wasn't a whole bunch of what they could not do yeah. uh, at that point. So I, I could any of that bring, brought up. That's something that I have not heard from anybody. And I have constantly thought who was in the room when Brett walked out and they started talking finances. Was it Cornette? Was it Sean? How many how many different meetings were given to all these all these people? You know, I mean, people who are not talked about in this are, you know, Briscoe and Pat Patterson, who were definitely the left and right hand man of Vince for many, many years from a booking standpoint and from a business standpoint. Vince Russo, in my opinion, I don't think he had a lot to say uh, when it came to who was getting hired and who was not getting hired. And I, I, you know, I imagine we'll get into a little bit deeper as we go on in this, but I think that's probably something that should be thought of, uh, but to put the heat on Vince for doing what he had to do, he's in charge of hundreds of people. And I think he did what was best for not only for him, but for his business, his family, whereas Brett is looking from just his perspective, mm-hmm. which, you know, he went to WCW anyways. Um, and, and he made some pretty good guaranteed money while he was there. But, uh, you know, and even as a fan of Brett Hart, at the time, you know, that's I, I didn't take into consideration of, of of Vince McMahon, which I think a lot of people don't take into consideration when they when they start making judgment calls on people. Is they don't look at the bigger picture. They're looking at a very small picture and the situation between two people, not some, not necessarily through the whole company or through the whole industry in general. And it's definitely easy in any situation to shit on Vince McMahon. Uh, you know, yeah. it, he just kind of made himself. You know, after this happened, he became that persona, like, I am the evil, you know, kind of corporate machine. Um, and, and speaking of Jim Cornette, I think this is a good time to talk about, uh, you know, as they, as Brett decides, you know, I, I don't want to lose this to Sean. And, uh, you know, I, I also, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention Sean's comment to him in the locker room. You know, Brett talks about when he says, you know, I know we don't like each other. We've had all these issues. I'm going to be a consummate professional out there in the ring. I would never do anything to, you know, put you in danger, you know, whatever, whatever we're going to do business. And Sean says, well, I'm not going to do the same for you. That Mm. to me is like the ultimate, just, I mean, when, when I hear that, just as somebody who's been in the business as long as I have, I, I just think that that's like the worst that you could possibly do, uh, from one, you know, uh, wrestler to another. But imagine how that had to sound to Bret Hart, who grew up in the professional wrestling business in his entire life, you know. And um, so, no, I don't blame him for feeling the way that he felt, given that quote. Um, So, you know, in the WWF boardroom during this time, they're trying to figure out how we're going to get the title off this guy. Um, So we've got the two different stories here jim Cornette gives this very credible you know he's a wrestling historian 
he reached back into the archives and found some, you know, kind of incident, or he probably just remembered him off the top of his head, to be honest. Um, you know, he's familiar with these kind of double cross scenarios from different from, uh, territories at the time um, and pitches it to Vince. Uh, and then Vince Russo, of course, says, well, I just came up with it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know. Um, so I definitely want to talk about this. Uh, Chris, what do you think? Uh, well, so first of all, who do you believe out of the two of them? And what do you think about the, you know, Cornette pitching this or, or Vince Russo pitching this? Um, so if we're going to keep it to just these two guys, because in other documentaries, everybody has their say, so oh, I did this and I did that. WWF version said Triple H is the one who came up and said, hey, if you're not going to do business, we'll do business for him. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think I call bullshit on that because Triple H is the fall guy from, from you know, previous year with the curtain call. Okay. Do you really think that Triple H, I mean, at that time, he was nowhere near close to being with Stephanie and the McMahon family, and he's not in the relationship he's in at current times. So do you think that he honestly was in that room and pitched that idea? No. Uh, so we'll kick that scenario out. So let's just focus on these two guys here. Jim Cornette has done absolutely everything in professional wrestling. He understands the psychology from front to back, even if you don't agree with his opinion on everybody, which I personally, let me say this. When I broke into the business, um, I didn't know a lot. And there was a nice gentleman in Columbia that happened to be like a second generation wrestler. Uh, his father had ties with Moolah at WWF, and he was one of the many people that was a handler of, of the women wrestlers that were in and out of WWF, Okay. The first thing he told me, and this guy wasn't much older than I was, but he'd definitely been out of the business for a long time. Mr. Rich James told me, kid, if there's one thing you're going to learn about professional wrestling, life is a work. Okay, Everything around you is going to be worked some way, somehow. So I think the bad attitude that people give Jim Cornette, it is strictly Kim, Jim Cornette likes good, good uh, publicity and bad publicity. He is constantly working people left and right, and I think – you know, people like to uh, overlook him because of the negative things that he says, which I think at times is a work between him and some of the other people, regardless of the conversation. Mm -hmm. That being said, what has Vince Russo done? We have nobody backing up the information that Vince Russo has put out there other than Vince Russo or Ed Ferrara, for which they both went to WCW and shat the bed. <laughs> Neither one of them produced anything in fact they broke down the wall again in wcw with the crap that they pulled between hogan and jeff jared at batch of the beach you know the infamous oklahoma character that that ed oh, Ferrar did so to sit there and to think that vince russo came up with this brilliant idea because we also see it in, in the previous episode that you guys talked about the brawl for all being another crappy episode of Vince Russo's tales. Do I think that Vince Russo was a guy in the room that produced some of the edgier stuff because he was probably the only guy in the room watching Jerry Springer or Maury Povich at the time doing all the different DNA tests out there. He brought that perspective and you can see that perspective in some of the gold dust stuff that's out there or, you know, stuff that would move on with the edgier stuff. I believe he produced that. But to have a sensible business mind, to be able to put two guys who are main event guys in, and say, well, you know what? This guy's brilliant. He just, he made the business right here with that one. No, there's no way. 
Cornette was in every major promotion in the United States. He's done everything. Did Vince allow Vince Russo to go run one of his territories? Absolutely not. He never did. The best thing Vince Russo ever did was the acting parts in some of the billionaire Ted stuff, which as, as a, a teenager or a, a child going to adolescence, I didn't even know he was there until, you know, 10 years later that he was in, in those films. I don't believe one bit that Vince Russo had anything to do with that. I think at that point, he probably went to Ed Farrar afterwards and told Ed, you know, we really hate Cornette, but he just came out with this brilliant idea on how to fuck somebody over. You know what I mean? And he didn't come up with that. It, it's something that's been in the business for many years. We saw it in Moolah do it to Wendy Richter. It's been done in tons and tons. Those are two infamous ones that have been brought up in modern times. But it's probably happened everywhere. I mean, it happened in shoe style wrestling all the time. So, no. And I don't think Vince Russo knew anything about pro wrestling. And there's no way that he even knew about business. So, yeah, throw it in a trash can, light on fire, like uh, Medusa did with the WWF Women's Championship. I mean, just to add to that, you know, like, with for the Brawl for All, he watched the Brawl for All, like, as they did the documentary and said he was totally entertained by it still. And he hip- he's a hypocrite because at the end he gets all upset about how, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that because – but he's laughing when Bradshaw – gets knocked out and he's just like i did it for bradshaw to get knocked out Stovall, you, you gotta do you gotta do the impersonation here i, I haven't seen one at, at, so you gotta do one when he says i did it for bradshaw and i hope you get knocked out <laughs> well I, I i'll be honest with you bro with uh watching this i i'm totally entertained by this <laughs> No, we literally, I would literally watch the Jerry Springer show and write Monday Night Raw. That was from his fucking mouth. Like, <laughs> that was from his mouth. I always thought that that was exaggerated. I thought, I thought, okay, they might have taken some ideas. No, he literally says they were watching Jerry Springer. While writing Raw, I'm just oh my god. Um, well, he took credit for the Attitude Era, and we know he wasn't the architect behind the moments that we all cherish no. from that time. He was no. the the filler in between that stuff with you know uh, you know the wet T-shirt contest in the ring, and you know uh, uh, Lawler screaming puppies, and you know all this other nonsense. Yeah, they had a – dude, I was watching Raw the other night and from, like, the Attitude Era, and it was – I saw The Brood versus um, the Ministry of Darkness, like three members of the Ministry of Darkness, and it was a bloodbath match. A match. And it wasn't, it wasn't a first blood match. It was literally they had buckets of the red liquid – and you had to dump it on your opponent to yeah. become the uh, well, uh, like what the Henry O. Godwood Triple H, you know, hog pin match, those kind of things. I, I believe that definitely came from Vince Russo. And if you don't believe me, just watch WCW time frame from Nitro, and we'll have Juventud Guerrero that's in the Monday Night Wars, you know, where they did the pinata on the mat, pinata on the pole match, or or Judy Bagwell on a pole match, you know, so. I mean, t- even when he went into TNA, 
uh, later years uh, from WCW, and he was in the early stages of TNA, and he brought in a comp- a group of guys, and they called themselves Sex, SEX, right. Sports Entertainment Extreme. It was just regurgitated ideas that he thought were going to work, and they ultimately did not work. Um, to me, he was not a head coach. And he wasn't even like an offensive or a defensive coordinator. He was like a special teams coach, in my opinion. He was a guy that if you want to do some trick plays and do something funny or comical that didn't get made up by one of the boys, you would call him Vince Russo. You know, we got two hours of time. We should we should bring in Vince Russo. They should probably bring him in now because they have three hours of television and they need to find something to put in there besides all the replays that they use these days. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> but I don't know if if corporate would really like that. But you know. I, I will, just because he couldn't get away though. with it with the PG rating. I mean, he just <laughs> yeah. couldn't. No, I I will say this though, for whatever reason though, Vince Russo and Vince McMahon worked together as a team. I mean, I mean they did. You know, obviously Vince, you know, is really the, the head of everything and uh, all that. But you know, just him, you know, because. Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, has even said it in interviews that it would be uh, Vince McMahon, Vince Russo, Pat Patterson, and uh, Bruce Pritchard, I think. And they would just sit at Vince's poolside and they would write stories and stuff like that. Uh, And also Ed Barrar, I think, uh, at the time as well. Um, I don't know. For whatever reason, they work. But I... Here's why I've always said, though, you know, Vince Russo was always full of shit and everything like that is because you could tell what Vince, what Vince was in charge of. Vince did not care about the mid card or the lower card. He cared about the main events. Like he cared about the stuff with Austin, Rock, Degeneration X and all that. He had a hand in all of that. But when it came to other stuff, like I said, you know, you had on Monday Night Raw, you know, a bloodbath match. You know, you had all of this other stuff. That was just stuff where Vince was like, okay, well, I just need something there. So, Vince, you write that. Well, you know, as, as, as the professional billionaire that Vince is, he still has this incredibly, like, childish, immature, you know, sense of humor. So, you know, Vince Russo <laughs> just, you know, scratched that itch for him. And, yeah. you know, and Vince did what he does. He he milked you and for all your ideas and everything that he thought you were worth. And then he tossed you. And I mean, yeah. and that's what Vince McMahon, I mean, that's that's yeah. his specialty. We all, we all have, when you hang out with a group of people, you, you everybody's got that one guy in the group that you know will do something stupid when you're bored. And and that's essentially, I feel that that was Vince, that was Vince Russo, you know? I mean, <laughs> And, and to, to reiterate on what you were saying, uh, Caleb, about, you know, Vince having this childish, you know, uh, mentality, I, the first thing that comes to my mind was, you know, Vince Russo sitting there going, hey, there's this guy uh, that is wanting to be a wrestler and he's he can throw up on command. We should totally bring this guy in. There's so many crazy things we could do with him. And he's like, I love it. You know, so then we fast forward to, you know, beyond the mat. and. Yeah, you get the infamous. He's gonna puke, and there's only one thing. There's only one thing left to do, pal. You know, do you need some coffee? You know, and you go from there. <laughs> Which, you know, also goes to this: is that 
to buy into more Cornette, Cornette, when he speaks of Vince, he uses the mannerisms. He sells Vince. He sells a Vince McMahon character. He's, he puts you in there thinking that you're actually talking to Vince. And one of the biggest things that he brings, he's like, pow, you know, there's all these things, which makes me believe that more Cornette had something to do with it. Um, and it could have been a quick idea that Cornette had passed on to, you know, I, I, he could have just said it and it could have been passed on to all these other guys that maybe Vince felt that this was probably the thing to do, but really wanted to get a feeler on how the, how this type of uh, action in this business would be, you know, uh, be looked at. Like how would Vince McMahon and the WWF be looked at when this happens? And they maybe wanted different, added different ideas from other people. And then as time has gone on, if you tell yourself something over and over again, you start to believe in your own bullshit at some point, which is, I believe what Vince Russo did. And maybe Pritchard did because Pritchard at some point said that, you know, he didn't even know that this happened, but yet at some point he says that my story is the best story because it's the most real story. You know, it's the most entertaining, but it's the most real realistic story and that he even, you know, take, has taken credit for it. So I think everybody wants to take credit for it because it's so infamous and it is probably one of the ugliest things that happened to pro wrestling, but yet the most exciting thing to happen to pro wrestling. And I agree with yeah. you on on Triple H too. I mean, I think I think what probably happened is I think they probably I think Cornette probably pitches this to Vince, and then Vince probably grabs Sean and Hunter, and go and and Vince just wants a yes man to tell him this is okay, and goes, hey, do you think we should do this? And then Hunter was probably like, absolutely, boss. You know, like you know, at, at this point in time. Um, I, I don't think there's any, I agree with you, I don't think there's any chance that, you know, kind of a little pipsqueak guy that's in trouble, Triple H, just goes, hey, maybe we should screw him out of the title, you know, out of nowhere. I just don't, I don't see that. That's, that's a work. You know, well, here's, here's the thing, too, you know, Jim Cornette can say he gave the idea, Vince Russo can say he gave the idea. The ultimate call, though, is one guy. Yeah. No, I mean, nothing happens. In WWE, it, it, Cornette talks about it here. To this day, they run the catering menu by Vince McMahon. Yeah, like, they do. <laughs> you know, and I don't know if that's legit. I mean, or... If it's not legit, it's a it's a heck of a rib, you know. Right, it's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and and either way, it's it's a it's a good metaphor for what for the amount of control that we all know he still has on the company. Um, so let's get into the event. Um, we've got all this build up here, so. They, uh, you know, Cornette pitches it. Vince runs it through all of his yes men and, and whatnot. Um, and they decide they're going to do it now. We have the incident where, you know, Bret Hart is like kind of smart to this, where he, he says, I thought they were going to screw me. Um, we have the recorded conversation, which was crazy that this just, that they happened to be following him on this day, uh, where he's wearing the wire in Vince's office. Um, you know, which may be one of the only candid recordings of Vincent Mann that exists, you know, um, because as we know, anytime he's in the public eye, he's in character um, for the most part. Um, so we've got he's that. Like <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, rest <laughs> in peace times two. Uh, <laughs> which by the time this airs, that'll be old news, but I'll take it. 
Um, so, you know, he's talking to uh, Hebner. He upgrades uh, Earl Hebner's uh, seat on the plane. And he basically, you know, tells Hebner that he thinks something is going on and that they're going to try to use him to screw him over. Uh, and Hebner, you know, just kind of like tears up and he's like, man, I would never do that to you. Um, and, and, you know, we've talked a lot about the, some of the speakers on here having agendas. Um, do you guys believe Hebner's story here that he kind of wasn't in on it until right before the match and then they immediately came up to him and said, if you want a job, you'll do this? Yes, I do. I, I, I really do because I don't think that – I mean – he might have known beforehand, like 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 that's probably why he broke down, you know, in front of Brett saying I would never let them do that. But I, I think Brett even says it best, like he doesn't even blame Hebner really, because it's like, I mean, okay, if he did know, what is he supposed to do in that instance? You know, like 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 what would you do if you were in his position? Hey, does Brett Hart sign your paychecks? No. Vince McMahon does. And if he's telling you to do something, you know, you, you do it. it. But that's just like it is in any job, you know? So but do I think that they could have, you know, threatened him um, like that? Yes, I do. I, I, I definitely do. Uh, could he have known beforehand? Maybe, but they didn't even know beforehand you know, kind of thing. They were still even mauling the idea. Like, I mean, you see it on the day of Vince McMahon is still trying to come to a resolution on it before he has to do it. So I think he might've, I think he might've been tipped off that like, Hey, we might need you to do something and you might not feel comfortable with it, but. Right. You know, and, or in the aspect of, of this, that I, Earl's been around the business for a long time. I mean, his brother was a referee um, his, his son would later on be a referee for WWF as well. And so the, the Hebner family has been around the business for a while. And I think leading up to some of this, people talk. I mean, I think one of the most trusted people in in the business are the referees. People, you get one, you, you fall in love with them, and you, you, you know that this guy or, or gal is going to protect you in the ring. And because we, you know, as you get smarter in, into wrestling and you start thinking more and more about it, you start to realize that every piece of the puzzle means something. And so, you know, being a referee and going to shows and having people, you know, ask me, you know, 100% like, Hey, I want you to do my match or a book or a promoter saying, Hey, you're going to be the main event guy, you know, or you're doing this match because we don't trust anybody else. We know your level of professionalism. I think maybe Earl, going up into this because this seems like this was not a hush hush conversation of what is going to happen with Brett. You know, is Brett going to leave the WWE, uh, you know, WWF to WCW? Is he going to stay now? Nobody knew, but this was definitely a, somebody was talking about this at catering on a, on a weekly basis. So maybe Earl smartened up and was just thinking, I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody's told me to finish. Um, and, and maybe because Earl was there for so long and was probably the most respected guy in the business as a referee, uh, you know, I think maybe the referees may have known a little bit more than, than what people think they know and may have known some direction of the company. Just because a lot of times we're really good about being quiet and being not being seen. 
So uh, maybe that's the reason why Earl got a little upset about it. Or maybe he's just upset in general thinking that this is what the business has gotten to. Uh, maybe he respected the business just as much as Brett did. Nobody knows. I, I firmly believe that Earl knew it. Uh, he knew he knew something. I don't. He may have known exactly what was going to happen prior to the match. Um, he may not have known. They may have told him this is what you're doing. They may have just said, "Hey, look, you know what we're in. It's going to be handled out there." Just do your job. And he may have questioned and said exactly what is doing my job. Be, don't worry about it. You know what you're supposed to do. You know, who's your loyalty lie? Does it lie to Vince McMahon, the WWF, or is Brett going to take you to WCW with him and, and pay you? So that may have been, you know, the deal. I, I, I believe Earl Hebner. And even as a fan, I'm one of the guys that yelled at him how he screwed Brett. Every show that I saw him on, even up to the point where they were in, in, you know, uh, in TNA, you know, yep. when he came through, I was, I would scream at him for that because I really didn't look at it from that perspective. I mean, as an entertainment funny perspective, I thought it was funny and cool to yell at him. I really didn't take into consideration the amount of weight that that man had been walking around with. And until I became a referee and saw the relationships that you build with the talent and how trusting these talents are with you, because you are more than a guy who just pins and does, you know, yell, ring the bell. Uh, you're, you're there to be the guy who's watching and making sure that these guys are protecting each other. And you're there as a, a barrier from, from the fans that sometimes, you know, you do a lot of work as a referee that most people don't take into consideration. Now, all of us have had conversations and we've, we've seen different, perspectives of the business. So we kind of know a little bit more about that, but I, I think, uh, I think Earl took it really personal uh, when he was asked or even told to pick a side and, and to know that what was fixing to happen wasn't right, that there probably was a different way to handle this. But when you have this many egos in such a high level, especially in the entertainment industry, uh, you know, things don't really work out in compromises. Chris, do you think that this incident was kind of the catalyst for seeing um, kind of referees kind of get there, like uh, like a, a gimmick? Uh, because, you know, as you mentioned, like before this point, like a referee was kind of always in the background. And WWE has gone back to that now where they don't even use referee names. But, you know, after this happened, you had Earl Hebner was this, you know, kind of legendary, most famous referee in the world at, at this point because of this incident. Uh, and then you had like Mike Kyoto, Nick Patrick, and WCW had this Randy kind Anderson. of complete, uh, yeah, aura about him. Uh, Charles Robinson legitimately had a gimmick with you know Lil yeah. H. Um, you know, it, was this event kind of the the kickoff for that happening over the next decade or so? I don't, I don't think so. I think that uh, back in the old NWA days with Tommy Young and his infamous slide. Uh, even with uh, Tiger Tory and uh, and I probably butchered his last name. I'm sorry if I did. Um, but even in New Japan, there was there's always a standout in major promotions of who the referees were, and it wasn't because of necessarily I think of of how good they were. It was the fact that they were seen all the time, and that you saw them a lot of the times in the big matches. So you got very familiar with them. Um, and at the time, there there wasn't. I mean, WB probably has 20 referees right now between uh, Monday Night Raw, 
SmackDown and NXT and the guys that they're bringing up. Uh, so, you know, there, there wasn't as many referees floating around. I mean, we know we, we pretty much can name all the referees that were in, in WCW at one time. Uh, and you could pretty much do the same thing for, for WWF at the time, you know? Um, so I think it may have brought more attention, um, but I necessarily don't believe that it, it, it made it any, I mean, I think they were all kind of already out there as it is. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think maybe in the eighties from a WWF perspective, the referees were kind of looked at weird because the territories that they ran up North were more sport based commissioned, uh, which is why we end up seeing later on in years where Vince would come out and say that he was a sports entertainment to some actual sports. Um, I think it brought a lot of attention to Earl Hebner, and that's about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, a, <coughs> that's an incredible you know perspective uh, on all of that. Uh, let so let's get into the 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 actual event here where it actually goes down. Survivor Series '97. Um, and, you know, as we all know, probably one of the most famous events in wrestling history. The match goes on. Sean locks in the sharpshooter, which he didn't know how to properly do, um, which was funny to me. Uh, and then, um, you know, Vince calls for the bell. And even before, he doesn't even give Hebner the chance to do what Vince is looking at as the right thing here. And he's saying, you know, ring the bell, ring the bell, ring the bell before Hebner even calls for it. Which, you know, if you've ever had anything to do with running a wrestling show, you know that's a huge no-no right off the bat is you don't ring the damn bell. The referee hasn't called for it. Um, and, you know, so Hebner, you know, calls the submission. Brett immediately, you know, reverses it to show, like, hey, I wasn't submitting. He does the, the famous WCW in there and, um, you know, spits the big loogie on Vince. Um you know, this this event was, you know, I definitely, I didn't watch WWF at all until like 2000, 2001. I was a WCW guy. Um, everything I knew about Bret Hart, I knew from his WCW run until I went back and looked at everything. Um, what, um, you know, what is this, if you were, if you heard about this as a fan in the time of, you know, at the time of 97, uh, what did you think about it? Um, we'll start with you, Caleb. Uh, well, I, I didn't even know that it happened um, because, again, that was at the time where, you know, 97 was NWO versus Sting for me. Right. You know, that was, that was the greatest storyline, you know, I've, I've ever seen uh, in my life uh, next to Austin versus McMahon and stuff like that. Um, so I didn't even really know that that's why Bret Hart was coming over to WCW. I just knew that he was coming over to WCW because my dad was just like, yeah, it's been confirmed that Bret's coming over to WCW uh, and stuff like that. But it, it, it's funny because I go back to what I said in the beginning of this. If you just, you know, if you heard about this, you would just kind of be like, wait, what? Like, it almost doesn't make sense if you think about it, like if you're just watching it and you have no idea about the behind the scenes stuff, which I didn't know about at the time, because I was, you know, just a kid. I, 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 you know, look at it and I would be like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, you know, it just, and what sucks about it 
is if you go and you watch the match back, the matchup that they had or that they were having was awesome. Like, I mean, they were battling out in front of the crowd. You hear Brett, you know, talking about laying the match out and stuff like that, like how he wanted to battle um, before the match even began and stuff like that. Like, Brett was so good at seeing the bigger picture of a match, you know, better than anyone. You know, I think that's pretty much why, like, him and Austin's matchup is so, you know, iconic at this point. Um, and it just it, – it sucks because you, you go and you watch it, and, and the match is awesome. And then you watch, like, the actual pay-per-view feed that they had and stuff like that. And you don't really see Brett do any of the WCW stuff. You just see Sean walk away, and then they, you know, they go to black, basically. So I didn't know that any of that, like, really happened. Um, and, again, you know, I just – I look at it, and it almost just doesn't make sense to me still. Like, I'm just like, I just – I don't get it. Like, because here's my question. Why didn't anyone just say, hey, Vince, you're the boss. Why don't you just take the damn thing away from him? <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't. And, and, and I'm sure you, know, you guys can, can put more perspective on that. But to me, I'm just like, if Vince, you know, makes the whole call, then why didn't he just, you know, go, okay, well, Brett, here, hand me that belt. Thank you. It's mine. Well, you, know, kind of. you want, right, you want him to put your guy over on the way out. And that was the right. thing is, like, you want Shawn Michaels to be, if he's your guy, you want him to be the solidified, undeniable, just he is the guy. So you want Brett to do the job for him on the way out. And that's that's right. what we're looking for. Um, and, and, well, and, and, and then, you know, to that point, you know, we're making Shawn Michaels the guy kind of thing. But my thing is, is, if you think about it, Shawn Michaels was only getting the belt temporarily to make Austin the guy. Right. Well, well, Michaels was on his way out when he was doing when he was getting ready to build Austin up and, and move him on uh, due to the back injury that he had from when he Russell Taker and then the infamous right. back body drop to the casket that really jacked him up. Right. Um. So to get to the perspective of your question of why Vince just didn't take the belt from him, um. At this, at this time, we see Vince outside, um, but he's still not Vince. He's still not Miss McMahon. So as a at this time, I'm probably like 11, 12 years old. Um, I know a little bit about the business from the backs because there's a, a guy in Charleston, South Carolina, that's writing reports about this stuff in the paper. And my cousins would call me up and pass this information along for me. Um, so I didn't know exactly what happened when it happened i had to be told this from you know this is pre-dirt sheet era where anybody and everybody can get it you know you could log into aol.com and and message some people every now and then but for the reality of it there was information wasn't as easy to get so you you're watching this and i go back and i watch i did not watch it live so i watched it as a kid and or as a teenager and i look at it and I go like why is vince running around like he's the guy who's usually behind you know over there or commentating or whatnot and my dad tells me like you know he owns it he just don't tell anybody you know his dad on it he gives me the backstory on it so not a lot of people were familiar on who exactly vince mcmahon was because they just were used to seeing him as a commentator um so seeing vince do that what i want to talk about specifically with 
this docuseries and the footage that they've used. So we, we talk about the big loogie that gets spit on Vince and Scott Hall comes in and says, this is a work. Here's a, here's a piece of evidence that why would the camera team zoom in directly on Vince? So let, and let's also go this. As soon as I got done watching the documentary today, I rewatched it because it's been a while since I've seen it. Immediately on YouTube follows the whole buildup package of, you know, Shawn Michaels and Brett. And it shows everything from, you know, this is one of the first times we see them walk out from backstage, even Goldberg style entrance for both wrestlers. And this is the first time we actually see this. We don't get to see them walk through a gorilla at this point, but we can see a little bit of backstage. And then we the match goes on and it, and it cuts out, like you said, you know, Sean walking away. Uh, by then, at that point, the loogie had already been spit. But guess what? The WWF product did not show any of that. Yeah, they didn't. The that's footage awesome. that's used is from the documentary that was produced wrestling with shadows. So a lot of the footage that we have from from this uh, episode it is from something else that WWF has. So that you know, this whole thing that it was a work, this was set up. Why did they do this? Why did they do that? That would also say that everybody in the business knew that Brett was going to get screwed over. And even the camera guys knew it. And the guys in the production truck knew it. I don't believe that. I believe it happened with a small group of people. I believe that there were phone calls, as some of the other documentaries talk about, where guys were getting called up in the middle of the night leading up to this in hotel rooms and being discussed, you know, the information back and forth. Um, you know, I, it looks really sad. This shows this shows that Shawn Michaels was not as good as everybody says he was because the sharpshooter was part of the match. Brett has gone on record and say that the whole point of the match, they were, he was going to do the sharpshooter, he was going to reverse it, and then they were going to go from there. So that's why we see Bret Hart try to reverse it because he's showing life still as we talk, as you talked about. And, and Hebner rings bell and gets out of town. He talks about that. And Cornette says, I was right in front of him, you know, walking out. I think Earl was right behind me, you know, because they all said, oh, shit. Like, he actually did it. Vince McMahon actually pulled the rug out from underneath Bret Hart. This is going to be some big news. And also some people are going to be pretty pissed off and we're going to fight about this. But I don't want to be here because I don't want to have anything to do with it because I didn't make the shot. I gave the idea maybe. But I didn't. I didn't make that decision. So I, I think that you know, Bret Hart looked at it this. And this is my perspective because I've been in this position before. You're looking. You're being told you're the guy. You're the. You hold the belt. The belt is a is a object that just says, "Hey, we think that you can put the butts in the seats. Every 18 inches, we think you can fill it in." That's your that's that's the, the title. It's it's your little hat that you would wear that says I'm I'm the big dog around here. So I think Brett took that very, very seriously because he understood that what he did react his the reactions that he would get fed hundreds of people that worked for WWF. He was carrying it. And he thought that Shawn Michaels was a very disrespectful little shit. And Something that a lot of people don't know about or don't pay attention to is that in the WrestleMania match, Brett has gone on to say that 
when he handed over the belt to Shawn Michaels, Shawn Michaels pretty much told him, get the F out of my ring. And it's a huge sign of disrespect, which in this documentary, we see that where he goes and tells that, you know what? I understand. We don't like each other. We know that if you give me receipt, I'm going to give you a receipt. But I'm going to tell you now that I'm willing to let all this crap go and let's put on good matches. Let's take care of ourselves. Let's make some money. And Shawn Michaels said, screw you. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because he was immature and he was he was on his rampage of doing drugs and alcohol and, and being, you know, the boy toy. So I think at every moment, Bret Hart was trying to be somewhat professional there. Obviously, I'm you know, I lean a little bit more towards Bret than I do Sean. But if we just look at it this perspective, we've seen this happen most recently over the last five, six years where Jericho was in, I believe it was Brazil, and he did something to the flag. And that's like a felony down there. Yeah. When we look at Shawn Michaels and how many countless times have we seen Shawn Michaels extremely, extremely disrespect the Canadian flag. If we did that to the American flag, people would be crazy. I mean, you would have people wanting to kill Bret Hart if he did that. But Bret Hart didn't do that. Shawn Michaels is in Canada. He's in Montreal. He grabs the flag from a fan, gets hit immediately with, with the soda or a beer, goes in the ring, picks his nose with it, blows his nose, does a little towel dance with it, shoves it down his trunks and pulls it out. Completely disrespectful to – to the Canadian fans, to the Canadian flag, to to everything about Canadians, which Bret Hart, being a Canadian, and like I said, up there, being a Canadian means means a big deal in certain territories up there. And you look at Montreal, it's a huge, huge territory where being Canadian is a legitimate thing, and they look at it. So Bret Hart, you know, took that very seriously. And so in that case, Bret Hart said, look, I don't mind – dropping the belt to the guy, but he's disrespectful. I don't think he earned it. I earned it. I did everything you told me to do. I grabbed the brass rings that WWE likes to put out. But what brass rings did Shawn Michaels do? Except right. for disrespect the talent, which Vince didn't – maybe Vince didn't look at that. Vince saw dollar signs. Vince saw maybe a different direction that they could go. Maybe Vince Russo's in there pumping pumping them up, saying, hey, man, you know, Turner can't do this, but we can do this. Maybe this is the direction we need to go once we get the belt off of Mr. Uh, Mr. Clean over there, who's Bret Hart, who's going to play everything by the book, who's not going to curse, who's not going to, you know, you know, go outside of being Clark Kent and Superman. Um, so that's where I really did not like Shawn Michaels as a fan uh, and as a guy who would run business. If I was a promoter and I had to deal with a guy like Shawn Michaels, I would, you know what, you're here for a couple months and then you're getting the hell out. You know, once your contract's done, I can't deal with this just because it seemed like a nightmare because you never know what you were going to get until yeah. it came to Attitude Era and we got a you know, crap ton of money off of them. But he ran the show and he pissed off a lot of people. So there's no telling how many stars that WWF could have made even bigger besides the Triple H, besides The Rock, besides the Stone Cold Steve Austin, which, let's be honest – once any of these guys were given a platform to do anything, they were going to be stars regardless because of the amount of work that they were going to put into the business. Um, so I, I just think that Shawn Michaels could have done something differently. I, I think Vince could have done something differently. Could Brett have done something differently? Yeah, maybe he should have agreed to drop the belt somewhere else a lot sooner. Uh, but I don't think Brett was in that mentality. I think Brett was really thinking that this company was going to take care of him because in his mind, he had been taking care of everybody for so long. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that too. And, you know, a lot of people prefer Sean's second run. Uh, and I'm one of those people over, you know, uh, his first run. Um, cause he was down to do business and he was, you know, sober Sean, uh, had found the smile. I got the smile back and, uh, you know, um, so the, we're running pretty long here. So the one last thing I want to cover before we wrap it up is kind of, you mentioned Scott Hall's comments here. I personally think he is completely full of shit. There's no way that he hasn't talked to Sean about this a hundred times. Um, but l- let's explore it. Is it possible that this was a work? And if it is, I mean, if it is, if, 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 if this was a work, it would be one of the greatest works of all time. And it's been protected by the people involved literally forever. I don't personally believe it is, but I want to hear what you guys think about Scott Hall's comments here. Uh, Caleb, what did you think about it? Well, you know, cause, cause like I said, you know, from the beginning, it, I can see where people would question it as a work because I mean, you know, everything in pro wrestling is a work, you know, basically <laughs> let's, let's just be honest, but you know, and especially when we hear, all the time. What is the one thing that we always hear from the WWE is that there's one guy in charge, Vince McMahon. And I just, you know, to me, at times, I'm, you know, I, I still even look at it. I'm just like, okay, again, why didn't he just, you know, say, here, give me my belt. All right, cool. You know, I'll figure out some other way to write you off. You know, he, he's had no problems doing that in the past or something like that. Um, but at the same time, I can see, I can see everyone's perspective uh, in it. Like I can see where Bret Hart gets pissed off that you know a, a lot of this stuff is happening to, him. especially when you know we talk about good storylines. I thought one of the more forgotten storylines that was really, really good was the Hart Foundation. Like the heart with Bret Hart, Davy Boy Smith, Owen Hart, Brian Pillman, and you had Jim the Anvil Nightheart. I mean, because, you know, they did the whole anti America thing, but it was different because they would go to Canada and you would hear this loud reaction like Stone Cold was in the building, you know, kind of thing. Like, like, like you'd never heard a reaction like that, you know? Um, I go to uh, Calgary Stampede, In Your House, Calgary Stampede. That's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I'm just like, wow. Like, like, and, and it was real. You know, it, it was legit. It wasn't telling the fans that, no, you have to boo this guy or you have to cheer for him. No, they were going to cheer for him regardless. Um, but, I mean, <sighs> I definitely don't. I definitely uh, I think that Scott Hall's full of shit when he's like, "Yeah, I haven't talked to Sean about this." He, yeah, okay. Uh, you only talk every single day, so <laughs> so that's a lie right there. Um, do I? Again, I agree that there's ways that they could have handled this. They could have done it the right. In fact, you know, Cornette lays it out. He's like, he's like, yeah, you know, it, it should be a happy ending, you know. Bret Hart, you know, he would have handed the belt over to Sean. Sean would have gone over and Bret would have left and we'd have all, you know, just, it, it, it had just been another night. But instead, it became this, you know, it became this thing that was responsible for so many things happening. It was responsible for the Attitude Era kickoff and it was responsible for, 
for Vince McMahon finally realizing, okay, I've got some money in me being a heel. Now I just need the perfect dance partner. And he found it was Stone Cold Steve Austin. And when, you know, you finally got the two of those together, that was just, well, the WWE could just print money, basically. But um, I understand why Brett wouldn't want to drop the belt to Sean. Because, you know, if, if when I was doing or when I was training to do some wrestling and stuff like that, you know, one of the things I remember there was this guy who came in and all he knew was karate. And he never, like, tried to, like, he would always be like, um, well, you know, when I get him over in the arm breaker, can, can I turn it into a bicep slicer or something like that? And I said, you slice my bicep and I'm going to, you know, poke your eyes out kind of thing, <laughs> you know? So I, I can see why Brett, I can see why Brett gets pissed at him for that. Cause that is very disrespectful. And, and we paint this, you know, bad picture of Shawn Michaels then because, that I mean, you know, he was. He was a prick. He's even said that, though, himself. He's like, yeah, I was messed up. I was in a dark place, you know. And, and he, and, you know, he's very remorseful of that. And I'm glad that he changed his life around. He found God. He, you know, he's living this great life right now, you know. I And I think that's where Brett kind of even gets more bitter because after that, you know, Brett, really what he should have had was this, he should have had this rocket run in WCW when he, when he went there after this, like they should have, they should have capitalized on this and, you know, they should, they should have let him come out and say what was ever on, whatever was on his mind. You know, he's saying, yeah, I broke my, you know, fist, but I broke it because I punched Vince McMahon out and stuff like that. And, and they should have done all of this, but they didn't. And, you know, his life really took a bad turn. You know, he, he, he did the horrible deal with WCW. And then, you know, his brother dies from a freak accident, which we will unfortunately have to cover here because they're uh, they made a dark side of the ring on that one. Um, and, you know, he had a stroke. So, you know, it, 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 in WWE version, they paint Michaels as this, like, sacrificial lamb. And then, like, oh, he, he rose, though, from the ashes. But then, you know, Brett, it's like, well, poor Brett, you know, he kind of faded into obscurity because of it. Um, you know, it's th there could have been different ways that they could have handled this. But ultimately, had it not gone down this way, then you know we would not be sitting here talking about this episode and i don't and, and again you know just like the, just because of the curtain call even i don't think we would have seen an attitude error i don't think we would have seen a man you know heel turn or anything because vince had no vince didn't even want to go in front of the camera he wanted to you know stay out of that but then after that you know he had no choice basically and uh, so, I mean, I can see where people say it's a work because, again, I, I think the idea of it, if you really think about it, is a little ridiculous. But at the same time, I can also, you know, I, I'm just kind of like, yeah, but I don't think they would have gone. I don't think people would have gone to great lengths to tell the story of it if it was this much of a work. They'd have been like, yeah, it was it was a work. And to keep it for this long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Chris, what's your kind of, you know, thoughts on this being a work and kind of your final thoughts on the whole episode? Yeah. Uh, so 
we go out, if we look outside the episode uh, and really just kind of touch base with people who have called it a work, uh, one of the most infamous people that call it a work all the time uh, is Honky Tonk Man, who is notorious for going on anybody and everybody's shoot interview. So I think a lot of the times information that Honky Tonk Man, uh, if you're going to take it as information, uh, it's going to be like listening to Iron Cheek for information. Uh, you're, you're, you're getting torn, you're turned left and right. If you're looking for some of these shoot interviews, um, as entertainment purposes, I think you're you're going to find that value in it. But to be credible witnesses to this stuff, I, I don't believe it. Um, I think over time, this story has become a wise tale and is, is as big as Paul Bunyan. And so I think everybody and their grandmother wants to talk about how they were involved in it and how they created it and took credit for it and may even just say, hey, you know what? Now it's a work because it's been told by so many different people and, and there's nobody can get a straight story. The reality of it is that there's only a handful of people that probably know the legitimacy behind this story. Vincent Mann, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels. Uh, I'm going to barely say Triple H because he probably heard a sliver of it while he was hanging out with Shawn Michaels, carrying Shawn Michaels' bags at the time because it's about the only thing he was allowed to do at that, at that point in time. I would believe Cornette. Because one of the few people that Vince trusted in many different areas. I mean, he ran OVW for so long. He was part of Smoky Mountain for such a long time. He went into ECW. So if you look at one thing overall, Cornette has his hand in everything. So if there's going to be a work, Cornette's going to be the one working us. Um, but some of the, a lot of the information that he spews out has lined up with everybody else. And he is one of the few people, along with Bret Hart, that the story has not changed. This is where I say that I don't believe it's a work. Because when you work somebody, you have a, a, a goal in mind. The same thing with the Brawl for All. They took the Brawl for All idea as this idiot's going to come out with a shoot thing. And Vince is buying into it because he wants you know, ratings. He wants whatever he's trying to get. He's looking at the, the brighter side of the, and he's trying to make a buck. And he's like, this is different. We're going to go with it. And so I, I think at this point in time, nobody won with the brawl for all. They tried to make it a work and it didn't work out because the, the, the black sheep came in and, and knocked him out. And he was the black horse. Spark gun came and knocked out, changed things up. Look at this. If it was a work, who's going to win? Nobody. Because the Vincent Mann character did come out of this, uh, but I, I, I don't think it came out in the way that we that he would expect it to be, and they went with that. Shawn Michaels didn't win out of it. His run was as good as his mustache that I'm growing. It was terrible because uh, the ratings dropped with him. <laughs> Bret Hart didn't win anything out of it except for a guaranteed contract, and once again, his run in WCW, as you said, was as good as this mustache because they didn't know how to do it. Just as like, I don't know how to grow a good mustache. And, and you gotta be crazy to think that I wasn't going to sit here and talk about it at least once. And I'm <laughs> talking about the mustache. I like know. the stash. I love it. I, I like the stash, but it, it didn't, it didn't do anything for anybody. It did absolutely nothing. We saw Bret Hart. He didn't show up to Monday night raw. I mean, Monday night nitro for at least a month. Um, and, and when he did come in, he had there was no setup for him. So you so you had a month from the time that he left WWF to do something with him to figure out what you're going to do. And your best idea is to bring him in as a guest referee in a Goldberg match. 
you know, uh, it just didn't uh, work out. Versus Eric Bischoff. Was, okay, so I mean, the, according to the, the documentary that we watched, the, there was a clip they showed right afterwards was right. the was the match with, with Goldberg and I forget who, I, was it Hogan that he worked in? That? But it was the infamous steel plate part, so thanks for yeah. correcting me. Uh, but still in that aspect, how many times, so that's more than once that they used him as, as an enforcer, as a guest referee, when one of the best matches that he had was probably with Booker T or uh, Chris Benoit in the tribute show for Owen Hart. Um, and, and I tell you to this point in time, if it was such a work, why is there so much guilt from Bret Hart leaving WWF and not taking anybody with him or not saying, hey, you know what, I'll sacrifice myself and just stay with WWF because he has enormous amount of guilt of not taking Owen with him. He has enormous amount of guilt of not taking Davy Boy with him or Anvil. Look at how many people from the Hart Foundation that are still alive today. None. None of them. And there's only one, Bret Hart, and he left to go to WCW. And, and from that time frame, all those guys went in and out of WCW and WWF and none of them are here because they weren't treated right, they weren't used right, and they went off the deep end just as many other wrestlers do. Um, I, I just don't believe that it was a work. It's it's really hard for me to do that because when you when you have a work, you have a winner and you have a loser, and somebody's getting a payday and somebody's not. And I, I just don't see anybody getting put over from this. And and I think the creation of that on-screen Vincent Man character probably led to a lot of the negative opinions about him. Not that those aren't valid that exists today because without that, I mean, he would have probably remained kind of behind the scenes and been even more elusive than he, he is. Um, but I, I think we've covered this one pretty in depth. Uh, Chris, absolutely. Thank you for joining us here today. Uh, you could see, uh, Chris on, uh, when wrestling starts back up, we're still kind of in quarantine <laughs> here. Uh, you can see him on Palmetto championship wrestling. You can see him on viral pro wrestling. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Hey guys, thanks for giving me something to do um, other than what's going on. I appreciate you guys coming out and, and doing doing what you guys are doing, giving uh, people an opportunity to you know think about something other than life right now. Right. And uh, like I said, hey, out of everything that's happening in this world, there's one thing that we can take away from coronavirus, and that we can that we know that lot that no matter what happens, professional wrestling is alive, and it's the one true sport in the world. Whether you want to believe it or not, it's the most entertaining thing on television. And if you don't believe me, you go check the ratings because the only thing higher right now is the people tuning in to, to get info about the coronavirus. Uh, pro wrestling is going to live no matter what happens. And and speaking of uh, watching wrestling content, I also want to thank, as always, my co-host, the man who watches more wrestling than anybody I know. You can hear him on the Stovall Wrestling Network. And I believe you guys just put out a brand new episode. Is that right? Yes, we did. Uh, I have uh, Jay uh, Garganis and um, uh, Bill Blanchard on there. And then uh, we'll have one. It's every Tuesday. Every Tuesday now will be a brand new episode of the Stovall Wrestling Network. And you can also uh, hear me commentate for VPW, Viral Pro Wrestling. Well, thanks, gentlemen. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in and watching, uh, especially if you're still with us. This is probably our longest episode to date. Um, <laughs> But I, I knew it was going to go that way. But uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. This has been an Evolved Review.